0: For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast leading up to Easter Sunday, We're honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. You need to understand, and, I, and this is not hyperbole, I mean this with everything that I have and am, that Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the central event upon which Christianity stands or falls. It's not just that Easter is one of those important dates on the Christian calendar. Without Easter, there is no Christianity. Without a risen Lord, there is no Christianity. Everything Christians profess, if He is not risen, is meaningless. The point of Easter is that this world, as it stands, is not how it shall remain. Jesus' resurrection proclaims a restoration that we ache for, all of us, though we haven't fully seen it. I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis, Christian writer and thinker, and he made this statement, and I think it's an important thing for us to hear on Easter. He says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how healthy or how successful you are, and it doesn't matter on the other end of that spectrum how simply you live or how laid back you are. All of us know a longing that tells us, deep in our hearts, that we were made for a life where things were good and things were right. And this is not that world. When things go wrong, we, we don't like it. And the question that I want to put out for us is, where does that come from? Why is that there? Why is there such a longing for things to be right and such a recognition when they are not? Every so often things happen and they whisper into our souls. They awaken us. There's this hope amid the wreckage and it resounds like a bell inside of us. It happens when the good guys win. It happens when we stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and we see the glory. It happens when the bride appears at the back of the hall and makes her way down the aisle toward the groom. It happens when the newborn baby lets out its first cry in the delivery room. Our hearts want to leap out of our chest at the thought of hope because we work so hard learning how to deal with people who fail us and circumstances that thwart us and disappointments that wound us, that when even the hint that such struggles might be temporary comes on the horizon, we remember things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they're supposed to be. And we find hope that maybe, maybe all that is wrong will be made right. Today's text is the story of two women who find amid the wreckage of a recent tragedy they find hope. Their friend and their teacher, Jesus, had died, a horrible death. And they're making their way to his tomb early one Sunday morning to grieve. And they discover something that they didn't expect. And so let's read the text together. I would invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray once more. Heavenly Father, engage our hearts with this story. Capture our minds and our hearts with the truth of what's happening here. Lord, awaken in us a hunger and an ache for all that is wrong to be made right and draw us to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen and amen. As a boy, I remember standing over a freshly dug grave. When I remember it, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember that it was green everywhere in the summer and there was this area of brown soil in contrast. And I remember how that little mound of brown earth pronounced that my green Indiana summer had been disturbed. Things were not as they once were. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And I stood there, maybe 10 years old at the time, alone, studying that dirt, studying it. And I was looking for something. I was looking for movement. Dusty was a good girl. She was a loyal, vibrant Irish setter. And I had no category for what had just happened. She always appeared when I came out to play. And here I was. Maybe the car just knocked the wind out of her. Maybe she'd sense my presence, and maybe she would fight and dig herself out like she did the night before in my dream. And I studied the earth, expecting Dusty to move it. And that was the day that I began to learn about the law of irreversibility. That there are tragedies that happen in this life that just can never be undone. There are moments that place our lives like an iron in the fire while the hammer of providence pounds away and shapes who we become. As they walk to Jesus' tomb, the women in our text, they bear in every step that they take the weight of irreversibility they're living this law out. The previous Sunday, Jesus was alive. They were with him. He was entering Jerusalem in a triumphant way. And now he was dead. And that was that. Now they knew, these women knew that the world was a hard place. Mary Magdalene, she was one that was there. When she first met Jesus, she suffered under incredible demonic oppression. When Jesus first met her, he cast seven demons out of her. She began to follow him at that point. She was part of a group of women who traveled with Jesus and the disciples, helping to care for the physical needs that they had as they went from city to city. The other Mary, as Matthew calls her, was the mother of a follower named Joseph. These women, we need to understand, when you read the Gospels, you realize these women were were present for the crucifixion. They were there. They were there for the whole thing. They attended Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they prepared and buried Jesus' body just two days earlier. These women, they were the last at the cross and they were the first at the tomb. And their hearts were broken. They had gone to the tomb to grieve. And to anoint Jesus' body. We read in the other Gospels that they brought with them spices and ointments to anoint Jesus' body. As if through the scent and the balm that they could somehow slow the decay. And have Jesus with them maybe, maybe just a little bit longer. As if they could bring some dignity to a corpse. There was a stone across the mouth of the tomb. They knew it, they saw it, rolled into place. They didn't know how they were going to move it. But they went just the same, unsure of how they got in. The fact that they were bringing these spices lets us know. They were acquainted with the concept of irreversibility. But their sorrow compelled them on. They were there. They were there to tend to the dead. That's why they were going. It was Sunday. It was the first day of the week. As they drew near to the tomb, the earth began to shake beneath them. This was the second earthquake in three days. The first coming the moment that Jesus died on the cross. He let out a loud cry, yielded up his spirit. The earth began to tremble and quake. Rocks split apart. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom in two. And now here, they're on their way on Easter Sunday morning to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, and there's another earthquake. And our text tells us something about the earthquake that is awesome. Throughout this series, as we've been going along, there have been little places in Scripture, just little clauses, little phrases that we've teased out together. And I've thought, you know, we're familiar with these stories, but then we see this. And it's just incredible, the detail that we're getting and the story that is being told. And the detail is this. The text says that there was a great earthquake, comma, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The earthquake was part of the angels coming and rolling away the stone, implying that the earthquake was the means that the angel used to roll the stone back. That's incredible, because think of this. The women are going to the tomb, and they're thinking about the stone, and they're thinking, who will move the stone? And the angel of the Lord appears and doesn't move the stone. He moves the earth and opens the tomb. And that's incredible. Considering the sequence of events in in the narrative here, remembering that Matthew is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's one of the the original 12. That when he gives this description of the angel, it must be that this is the, the description that he himself heard when these women arrived and described what they had seen, when they raced back to the disciples and said what they had seen. And imagine it. They said, well, there was, there was an earthquake and it rolled the stone and there was this man and he appeared and he sat triumphant on that stone and he was dressed in snowy white and he looked like, he looked like brilliant lightning. This must have been an incredible thing to witness and it must have been near impossible to describe Searching for the words, it was the man dressed in lightning. He appeared in the earthquake and the earth shook and it moved the stone away. His appearance had an impact on the guard of Roman soldiers that were there to protect the tomb. You remember The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pontius Pilate after Jesus was buried, and they said, we're worried that somebody's going to try to do something. Jesus said that he would rise from the grave, secure the tomb, give us soldiers, and Pilate gave them a guard of soldiers, and there's soldiers there. Now, what you need to understand is that Roman soldiers were not obtuse, hapless clowns. The Roman Empire did not conquer the known world by stumbling all over themselves and certainly not by shrinking away in the face of oppression these were grizzled hardened military men they were well trained but these soldiers guarding the tomb never saw anything like this angel and they fainted in fear and the women were filled with fear too wouldn't you be? with the man dressed in lightning coming in an earthquake and the stone moving away. Their world was fragile enough already. Everything had broken. And now there's this ground giving way apparently due to this figure who looked like if he wanted to, he could consume them with a snap of his fingers. They're afraid. But the angel speaks. And he speaks to them. And he says to the women, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. The angel says, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He knows their grief. He knows their burden. He knows why they've come. And then he says, he is not here, for he is risen. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. I don't know if you know this. Nowhere in the Gospels do you find an eyewitness to the actual moment of Jesus' resurrection. Nowhere. No one tells that tale. We know that he rose. We know that his disciples saw him. We know that up to 500 others saw him at one time, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. We know that many of these eyewitnesses to Jesus touched him, had meals with him. But God raised him in such a way that no human eye was permitted to witness. And I think this this is in that category of things too wonderful to behold. That God did something in raising his son that we couldn't handle. The soldiers faint at the sight of the angel. But he is risen. And the angel bids the women, come, see where he lay. Now this is another detail that is fascinating to me is the angel saying come and see where he used to be. It's fascinating for this reason. If Jesus was already risen when the women arrived at the tomb then this whole display of the earthquake and the stone moving and the man dressed like lightning coming down this didn't happen to let Jesus out he was already gone. The angel did this to open the tomb to show the women he's already gone. This tomb is already empty. It wasn't as if Jesus came to life and then had to bide his time inside the tomb waiting for someone to come and roll away the stone. He rose and he left the tomb. How did he do it? I don't know. Probably in a very similar way to how he would later appear to his disciples when they were gathered in a room with the door locked and he came in without bothering to use the door. Something like that. But the angel opens the tomb just to show the women he's not here. He's not here. And what you see in every action and word of this angel is that it is all very matter-of-fact. I know why you're here. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he's not here. He's risen, as he said, come see. It's very matter-of-fact, the way that he's talking about this, which suggests that as far as the angel was concerned, this was glorious, but it was all unfolding just as God had planned and just as Jesus knew things would go. In fact, when the angel declares that Jesus was risen, he added that this is as he said. He's not here, he's risen as he said. Did you know that there are at least four occasions in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus predicted that he would die and rise again on the third day? Now, some of us think, yes, but, the nature of things like that, those are prophecies that can be taken really a host of different ways, right? What did he say? I want to read to you just just two of the four, so that you can get a sense of the specificity coming from the lips of Jesus. Matthew 16, 21, he was talking to his disciples and he said that, quote, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That was one. That's pretty specific. The other is from Matthew 20:19. He's talking about himself as the Son of Man. He's using this language, the Son of Man. And he says, The Son of Man, they'll deliver him over. This would be the chief priests, Pharisees, and scribes that he just mentioned. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then he'll be raised on the third day. That's what Jesus said months, sometimes years earlier. These statements were, in fact, the reason for the guard. Everybody knew that Jesus had said things like this. And you know what? He's risen, and everything about it is just as he said. Was this a dream? that these women were having, hope is welling up within them. And I love that that, that Matthew lets us see that hope comes for them as hope often does, that it's packaged together with confusion, bewilderment, fear, alarm, joy, trembling. This is an otherworldly moment for these earthbound creatures. Of course, they're trembling. But what the angel says underscores hope, the hope of humanity. Before Jesus and ever since, that all of our frailty and brokenness and struggle and grief and mourning, these things have a remedy. That, that, that our ability to wound others so deeply with our sin and our propensity to absorb so much pain and grief from the sins of others, this may in fact be reversible. It may be reversible. Reversible. Death has been reversed, which means death has been beaten. It's been conquered. And the angel reminds us, and this has been the plan from the start. And it's all just as Jesus said it would be. It's been one of the great things of this sermon series over time is that we're seeing the deliberate intentionality behind Jesus going to the cross. No one took his life from him. At every step, he offered it up and offered it up. When he had opportunities to escape or to let himself off the hook, he didn't take those opportunities. He laid it down of his own accord and he was buried and then he rose again. Now, you might be wondering, okay, he rose again, but what does this have to do with me? And the answer is, if Jesus is risen, it changes everything. It changes everything. I studied that fresh soil, hoping that the earth would move so that Dusty's grave would be open and my dog would overcome death, and I ask you, who taught me that? Where did that come from? I'm 10. And every fiber of my being is crying out, this is not how it should be. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. Where did that come from in the heart of a 10 year old boy? Where? I didn't want death to be the end more than anything. I didn't want death to be the end, and no one does. And what possible explanation could there be for this phenomenon except to say, as C.S. Lewis said, that we were made for a world where death does not prevail over life. I'm telling you, we were made to live, not to die. And death is an intruder. That's what I'm saying. And that's the glory of Easter. Because for these women, the earth did move. For these women, the grave did open. Jesus did overcome death. And the irreversible has been reversed. And the angel's not done. Continues. And tells them something else that adds even more glory to this scene. He says, he's risen, and I want you to go and hurry and tell the disciples that he's risen and that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Now go. Jesus was planning to meet up with them. Now, why would he do this? Why would Jesus want to meet with his disciples? Wasn't it enough that he just rose from the grave? And the answer is Jesus had a purpose for the lives of his disciples then, just as he has a purpose for the lives of his people today. The glory of his resurrection isn't just that Jesus beat death, that's incredible, but it's that he rose and we are joined with him in his resurrection for the rest of eternity when we believe that his death was in our place and that he took upon himself the wage of our sin the angel bid these women go tell go tell the disciples jesus was risen and that he's going ahead to meet them in galilee jesus purpose for his people was just getting started at this point it was just beginning The purpose in his resurrection wasn't just for his own victory over the grave and his own eternal life in the presence of his father. It was for our victory over the grave, for our eternal life in the presence of the father. And what a change. I love that the text tells us that they went to the tomb and there was grief and there was fear. And when they left, there was joy and there was still fear. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, Hebrews tells us. But it appeared death itself had been beaten. I mean, the thought itself is a wonder. They saw the empty tomb. He was not there. But this is still something of an abstraction, really, when you think about it. I mean, after all, they hadn't seen the risen Christ, right? They had seen an angel, yes, and it was a pretty powerful thing to experience. But the angel's contribution really lay primarily in forensic evidence and instruction, right? See, he's not here. Go tell the disciples. It's evidence and instruction. But for many, like Jesus' disciple Thomas, who said, I can't believe unless I can take this finger of mine and stick it in the wound in his side. For many, evidence and explanation are no substitute for the real thing. The women obey the angel, they hurry away. And Jesus met them. And he said, I I love the way that the Bible is so... Curse sometimes. Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Greetings. I can't tell you how many times I've read this text out loud trying to figure the way to say greetings that we might understand what that was like, and I, I can't I can't come up with it. Greetings. What we know though is that they were on their faces. They saw him. They immediately recognized him. They worshipped him. And here's another place in scripture where you get a detail that just sings. They took a hold of his feet. They took a hold of his feet. Now, why did they do this? The first reason is obvious. They were on their faces. It was the closest thing to them. But they also took a hold of his feet that they might know this wasn't a hallucination. This was not an apparition. This was really Jesus. They touched him. They touched him. And he told them, he told them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I think at that point, what is there left to fear? They can't kill him. What else can they do? Don't be afraid. He tells them, stay on their mission. Tell the others that I'm going to meet them in Galilee and tell them death has been defeated. Tell them that the irreversible has been reversed. And we're going to develop this for the next two weeks as we finish off this series, the impact of this. It's amazing enough that these women saw the angel. It's amazing that they saw the empty tomb, but to touch Jesus, they touched him. And I ask you the question, how tangible is your faith? Do you resonate with C.S. Lewis saying, "If, if, if, if there's a desire in my heart that I cannot fill in this world, then perhaps the best explanation for that is I was made for another world. Are you somebody who regards religion as a way of thinking? It's It's just something for the mind to chew on, or it's the business of trying to be a better person. What if, what if the whole point of true religion was to live both now and forever as you were meant to? What if death feels so wrong because it is so wrong? What if the emptiness that you can't seem to fill with the things of this world exists because it cannot be done? What if you were created for another world? Someone would have to overcome this world for you. And Jesus overcomes the world. He defeats death. He reverses the irreversible. When he rose on Easter Sunday, we are wrong if we see it as a happy ending because it is just the beginning. It's not the end. He is the door through which we enter the life that we were created to live. The Apostle John, as he concludes his gospel, he says, these things are written not just for your information. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Do you believe this?